0: I'm Dr. Timothy Smith. In this Security Debrief podcast, we're discussing some of the history, lessons, trends, and challenges in biosurveillance, medical intelligence, and homeland security. Dr. James Wilson is the director of the Nevada Medical Intelligence Center at the University of Nevada, Reno. And I have to tell you in full disclosure, I've known Jim for more than 13 years. We met back in 2005 And both of us worked at the Department of Homeland Security National Biosurveillance Integration Center. Jim, what was your position then? Uh, I was the Chief of uh, Analytic
1: Operations, so my role was to begin the process of pulling together the methodology and the processes and the products that NBIC would initially produce.
0: So not all of our listeners will be familiar with NBIC or the National Biosurveillance Integration Center. Would you talk for just a minute about what the mission of the NBIC was? And I say was because it's been through a number of iterations, and that's part of our DB, debrief process here at Security Debrief is to talk about what the thing, way things were and what was right, what was wrong, and where we're going next. So.
1: Well, what we were confronting at the time was this realization that we really did not have a formalized warning system for non-routine or unexpected infectious disease uh, crises. Um, and at the time, we were worried about Al Qaeda, you know, potentially um, uh, aerosolizing an agent like anthrax and bringing it into a U.S. city and causing lots of mischief. You know, um, deploying a bioweapon either at a football game or in a busy subway. And there were programs already in place at that time, like BioWatch, to monitor the air for uh, those kinds of uh, um, suspicious-looking findings um, to enable quick response, right? So a quick response to these kinds of deployments means that we can get antibiotics to people and mitigate the potential impact of a terrorist attack. But at the same time, what we actually were dealing with in reality was Mother Nature. So Mother Nature was busy throwing uh, H5N1 at us, and it was really scary. Uh, influenza, H5N1. Yeah, influenza, that's H5N1. right, avian influenza. Um, and, and it was scary because there was tremendous uncertainty. We, the, the funny thing is that we were dealing with is that with all the advancements we've had in diagnostic technology and a lot of the tools we use in science to unravel uh, genetic code and to understand genetic code, What that presented us with was with all this um, access to knowledge, it didn't necessarily answer a lot of questions, key questions, you know, like is, is H5N1 going to become a pandemic? A lot of people advocated that it was about to go, quote unquote, hot, meaning that it was going to become a pandemic. And meanwhile, we had folks in DC worried about Al Qaeda spreading anthrax, right? And so there's a lot of, when you were there at the time, you realized. Okay, those are two completely different problems (laughs) in many respects in terms of the technical capabilities you need to be able to detect these events, as well as link that warning communication to response, and the responses are vastly different in some cases. Well, if I can
0: interrupt you there, the BioWatch program, for those who aren't familiar with it, uh, is a large-scale aerosol monitoring system that's still Mm -hmm. running today with Mm -hmm. the same technology. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's great for... A large scale attack Mm -hmm. is great to let you know that an attack has occurred. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's right. But the focus at INBIS was more to anticipate. In fact, it was the anthrax attacks uh, in the fall of 2001 that helped to prompt the idea for NBIC. It was seen as another intelligence failure that we didn't anticipate Mm -hmm. that attack. And while BioWatch is great for a large scale attack, but what about anticipating? Well, so the anticipation of a bioterrorist
1: or bioweapon deployment um, is really dependent on uh, access to intelligence, right? And so you need to know if there are bad guys that are plotting to do bad things with bad diseases, right? Um, and that's that kind of information, getting that kind of information, um, we all know the process is not perfect. I mean, sometimes we know things, sometimes we don't. And it is that uncertainty that just really drives people crazy because... You, you would like to get things to a hundred percent level where we're going to um, anticipate things well ahead of time with plenty of opportunity to intervene and prevent things from happening. The so called minority report movie, right, you know, right. with Tom Cruise, you know, sort of speaks to that. Is can we get ahead of crime? Can we get ahead of an act of warfare? And um, and and I think after doing this work for twenty five years, you know, you just you come to an acceptance that we know what we can know. And you need to accept the fact that we're not going to know a lot of things, and then, so you're going to have to have a strategy that handles both sides of that. What's egregious, however, is if you do miss warning signals and you don't communicate those warning signals and, if, and put them to effective use, then you, know, you, should, you should be prepared to be held accountable for that, right? And so we do have many examples in health security where big signals have been missed and missed for months, and there are all kinds of reasons for why these signals were missed or delayed or weren't communicated. Um, and some of them involve, um, uh, you know, precursor signals for um, trends in biologic
0: weapon deployment, of course. Mm-hmm. Let's talk a little bit more about that and go a little more in depth. Mm-hmm. I happen to know, as many other people do, that you were involved in another program in addition to the National Biosurveillance Integration Center mm-hmm. that you started back in Washington. And there was a commercialization effort mm-hmm. that came out of that. And that was kind of a precog bio-threat or bioterrorism, uh, if I can say that. I'd like you to talk a little bit more about that and some of your successes and, and lessons learned that came from that.
1: Sure. So, um, we're talking about a program called Project Argus. So I have a public, publicly approved, um, you know, approved by the sponsor testimony that's on uh, public record. Um, on Project Argus, and, and really, Argus was the beginning of us creating the NORAD for infectious disease, basically the global scanning system. At the time, there were other um, programs in place that the public may know about, like ProMed and, and HealthMap, that that were monitoring media sources, and, and WHO was plugged into this as well. Um, and those programs are
0: still ongoing, and, and yes, I, I would say uh, good as far as they go, right? Yes, yes.
1: The cha- the reason why why I, I was pushing, personally pushing for Project Argus is number one, um, these programs had significant gaps in their access to certain parts of the world. Um, and I won't go into detail on that, but there were there were glaring gaps, gaps that, that were egregious. Um, the other gaps that we had was related to the analytic discipline. So just because you're collecting all this information doesn't necessarily mean you understand what the information means what to do with it, what the prioritization of all the different event threads that you're tracking around the world are, and that to me as a physician was like trying to pay attention to every single disease on, in the world. You can't, right? You have to sort of draw a line for okay, these are diseases that you know routine public health can manage and handle, but these are the kinds of events that we really need to drill into because. They're non-routine. Public health isn't doesn't understand these diseases yet, or or these kinds of contexts or scenarios, and we need to maybe intervene and engage in these in these situations. Argus was intended to be the precursor to NBIC, right? Um, and then when we wound up commercializing it, the reason why we wound up commercializing um, the effort was uh, because. There was an overlay of bureaucracy and politics that was, uh, at the time, really interfering with our ability to execute the mission. Um, before you go
0: too far into that, that question that I asked, let me ask another question, and <laughs> layer questions on here. Uh, how is Argus different than the Armed Forces Medical Intelligence Center at and what? Uh, for those of you who know, it, it became the National Center for Medical Intelligence. Uh, that's a connection, it would seem, between health infections, infectious disease, and the intelligence community, and, and not um, things not known to everyone, if mm-hmm. you might say.
1: AFMIC uh, performed a very specific role for the Department of Defense, whereas ARGUS and NBIC really was focused on the broader national interest, which is which goes beyond just the military, goes into you know protecting our civilian infrastructure. So when you really look at this problem, and and take a step back and look at the big picture here, of course, um, non-routine or unexpected infectious disease that appears because some terrorist has released it, or because Mother Nature has thrown us a curveball, yes, of course, our deployed forces could be at risk. The broader context is, is our country is increasingly connected to the global air traffic grid. And we knew this trend was coming for many decades, We, we knew this was going to turn into a mess, where the the notion of a disease getting picked up in Mongolia and landing in within 24 hours anywhere inside the U.S., you know, that it sounded out, outlandish, you know, 50 years ago. But what we're realizing now is, and we're seeing it now routinely in the media, is that that's that is what happens: is that travelers go out, they pick up the diseases, they bring it back. That traveler winds up in a typical urban hospital that doesn't doesn't put those pieces together, you know. So, so um, those
0: those issues were. A homeland security issue. Those issues Absolutely. still are, yeah. and increasingly so, homeland security issues.
1: Yeah, and to go back to the beginning of our conversation talking about the difference between BioWatch and, and NBIC, is BioWatch was squarely focused on intentional releases involving an aerosolized agent. Whereas, from our perspective at NBIC, we realized. We often don't know how that event appeared in the first place. We don't have attribution. In other words, it could have appeared because somebody did something intentionally. It could be the result of a laboratory accident. It could be the result of a, of a field test of a novel uh, vaccine, which we've seen before. You know, where epidemics were sometimes triggered by live vaccines. Um, and it, you know, more times than not, it was Mother Nature. The vast majority of time, it was Mother Nature.
0: The best, the best bioterrorist there is, Mother Nature. Well, yeah,
1: and so the notion of how do you create a resilient infrastructure, You know, if we drive everything to the side of bioterrorism and terrorist activities, you miss the big picture. The big picture is <laughs> we still have to be resilient to all the naturally evolving issues, right? Um, and, and I would argue that if you do have a, um, a system that's resilient in an all-hazards format, that basically you are able to be resilient and mitigate against the impact and effect of terrorist activity. So a lot of the work that I've done is to quietly research all of the historical events that actually have happened where people have intentionally deployed infectious disease. You know, everything from Sverdlovs to, to um, you know, what happened with Salmonella and the, the Rajneesh cult in uh, Oregon to um, the Japanese activity in China during World War II. You know, lots of different examples where, Um, We have some pretty hair-raising examples of deliberate deployments involving a highly lethal agent at a time where people did not have access to antibiotics, they did not have access to modern medicine, and yet they still came together as a community and exhibited tremendous resilience in the face of the threat. And in many cases, managed to contain the threat. So so that's kind of a missing part of the story is that if, if we kind of focus on that human, on the strength of human resilience then it does tend to kind of bring a balance to this conversation and and tends to reinforce this notion that we must take an all-hazards kind of approach and don't bias ourselves in one silo or the other, because then we'll, we'll be missing potentially the big picture.
0: So Argus was good at doing that. Yes. Argus was an academic program or an operational program?
1: Well, I was based at the university, but my mind in it was to operationalize it as fast as possible, and it it was already achieving operational validation within 30
0: days of the program activation. That was Georgetown, Georgetown Mm -hmm. University. Going from academic to operational and having a lot of bureaucratic constraints must have been hobbling.
1: Well, at the time, the administration was incredibly supportive, and the people who supported the program I considered to be heroic. Um, a lot of these folks knew that we were, we were trying to do something that did not exist before and was um, being sponsored by um, parts of the government that traditionally were not involved in this space. And so, um, to me, that was an example, that was one of the bright spots where government did something incredibly innovative, um, really stuck its neck out to try to do the right thing. Um, what really um, you know drove it into the ground ultimately was the politics so I wouldn't say it was so much the bureaucracy as it was the politics the partisan politics Interesting. Yeah. and so you know um, you know I was considered a quote-unquote Republican operator which was a misnomer because actually my career began under Clinton too uh, in fact I was recruited to participate in a lot of these activities um, by the Clinton administration and, and, you know, operatives working under that administration. So, so that would have been the precursor to,
0: to ARCIS, yes? Yeah, those were the
1: days when I was involved with looking at um, trying to use satellite imagery to anticipate outbreaks of Ebola in Africa. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's where, you know, uh, I, I was never a bench-top researcher. I was more of a, of a practitioner, and, and I was really obsessed with this notion of can we monitor the world for preemptive indicators, indicators that, like a weatherman, um, you know, would look at and say, well, we're, we're, we're at risk now to see a situation, right? Whether it's Ebola or Rift Valley fever, what have you, cholera. There was some very compelling research that was being produced by a lot of different independent groups that um, were busy utilizing uh, satellite imagery to uh, anticipate large-scale outbreaks of, of disease. Um, And so that's how all this began, really. As far as, you know, okay, so we we had Argus. We had a commercialization effort. We had NBIC, right? Um, I think the, the challenge with all of these things is the first step when you're monitoring the world for health security issues is first you have to baseline your monitoring system. So you have to actually have enough data and enough information flow uh, with enough experts on your team to really interpret that information, to really understand what's the true global baseline. We really didn't have that yet, right, with ProMed or HealthMap or, or Google Flu Trends, what have you. We, that was the first step. So you can't anticipate things until first you put your finger on the pulse and learn what the pulse feels like. So you're talking about training analysts. Well, it, it was... We were building the plane and flying at the same time. Right. So, so the analogies with what we were doing versus the birth of radar to support air flights, right? So when they first turned on the, the first radar systems, this was an era where people saw things on radar that they couldn't explain, the UFOs, right? <laughs>
0: Which, by the way, the Navy pilots are still seeing. <laughs> well, yeah, we, that's a whole other fascinating conversation there. You know, um,
1: is, is we didn't really understand what the world really looked like until we turned this thing on. And when we did see all these signals, we had to learn how not to overreact, how to take a breath you know, before you jump to a conclusion. I mean, it was a painful, sometimes painful process. Um, I had come into this whole environment out of an Ebola hot zone, right? You know, where, where we were sampling animals looking for Ebola on the ground with, with you know, uh, we were hours of off-road driving away from the nearest medical center, you know. And, and you go from all that uncertainty and, and potential, you know, fear for yourself to, okay, now we're going to look at this not just from a rainforest point of view, we're going to go to the entire planet and cross all these different cultures, all these different languages, all these different belief systems and political systems and, and different levels of information um, uh, disclosure, <laughs> you know, to discover that everybody hides information. And I would often be asked about, well, do you worry about the Russians or the Chinese, you know, manipulating information as you're monitoring these these reports. And i got to be honest with you, I've seen an equivalent amount of information suppression right here in our own country, you know. And people, you know, manipulate information for all kinds of reasons. But that's a baseline unto itself, right? You have to understand that. You have to know that. And so when this system was running long enough, we, we began to get a pulse. Then we were able to begin predicting patterns.
0: Talk more about that.
1: So the analogy I often used was an EKG. When you go see a physician and they run a 12-lead EKG, it's a series of lines on a on a chart, right, on a graph. We know what normal looks like as physicians. Why? Because we recorded so many people, right, that, that were not suffering from heart disease, right? Then over time we began collecting little cases. You know, case reports over the decades, we we collected tracings of people who are experiencing a heart attack or people who had a cardiac arrhythmia, which is a um, uh, a problem with your heart rhythm, right? And so we began putting together libraries of patterns that look like different heart conditions. Well, when you watch the world long enough, you know what the cholera signature looks like. So the EKG signatures, right. yes. Okay. That's right. You know what Ebola looks like. You know what what an infectious disease that that particular local community has never encountered before, you know what that pattern looks like. And so if you watch things long enough, you get a feel for when things don't look right. And so where prediction comes in is you're basically predicting routine patterns so that you can preempt analysts to, hey, remember this is the time of year that we're gonna see cholera in Bangladesh. This is what the pattern typically looks like, Here are the confidence intervals, right? There's always a confidence interval of that. So just be aware this is the time of year where you expect to see this kind of pattern, right? If you don't see it, then, well, let's talk about that, right? Let's see what's going on there. And there are all kinds of reasons, of course, where we might not have a prediction validate. Um, Unvalidated predictions or predictions that don't validate actually are of interest to us because a lot of times what that means is they're dealing with something unusual, um, we had cases where um, certain nations were seeing excessive levels of dengue, for instance, record-breaking levels of dengue. The patterns that were routine for dengue reporting for those countries actually look quite different when they're dealing with a really bad year of dengue, right? And so the EKG strip, in other words, looks different, right? Looks concerning, would prompt scrutiny, right? Now. Nine times out of 10, this is basically, they're just experiencing a quote-unquote bad, but perfectly natural uh, you know, season of whatever disease, right? So we have bad years of flu, we have bad years of dengue, and that's kind of like a once a 10 year kind of badness, right, and, and it happens, and it doesn't mean we have a national security threat, okay? Yeah. It just means that we've got a situation, they might need some assistance, you know, of some kind. Uh, you know, it's an opportunity for dialogue, but that's where the prediction stuff comes in i don't believe that we ha- we are effective at predicting black swans um, i do not believe that um, we can predict the next pandemic um, we're, we're not going to get into the debate of how you define that word pandemic um, but i do believe that after you monitor the world the first i mean when you're when you're trying to develop an effective warning system you have to understand what the world looks like from the tracing standpoint from the signature pattern standpoint and that gets you closer, as close as you can, to detecting that, that first event that made maybe the butterfly wings that herald a hurricane.
0: Right? Well, let me, let me change directions for a minute. So using those techniques, can you anticipate or predict, or anticipate, I'll just use that word, anticipate, things like antimicrobial resistance?
1: Um, That's a very difficult signal to detect um, from a global scanning standpoint, right? You have to often have access to uh, direct laboratory data. Um, But there, we do use models that look at different aspects of that problem. So for instance, if you see horrendous fluoroquinolone resistance, then we are expecting to see problems with Clostridium difficile, typically in that country's nursing homes, right? Uh, If they're abusing fluoroquinolones. We certainly have seen that here in the U.S., right? So certain things go together, right? So um, that's very similar to monitoring the world for pandemics or, or bad events is if an, if an analyst notices a certain set of indicators, uh, which is very similar to me as a physician evaluating a patient in the clinic, if I see a certain set of signs or symptoms, then I know to ask about or look for these other set of signs and
0: symptoms, right? So while these are different modeling techniques and the details, the approach the analytic, not the analytic approach, but the, uh, the ability to anticipate and the methodology at a high level is very similar. Yeah, it's, a, it's basically
1: almost identical to a physician or a veterinarian, uh, veterinarian evaluating their patients, right? So we know that if we see these indicators in a patient, 9 out of 10 times these indicators mean they just have a viral illness. They're going to do just fine. They don't need antibiotics, but if they come in and, they, and it's been going on for seven days and they're really punked out and you might see this this ugly looking rash that goes with it, then or they're pulling you know child is pulling at their ears right and you look in their ears and there's pus in there, you know that it, that you need to intervene right, and so you have a sense as a practitioner that you are predicting basically you have you have an array of probabilities that if I see this pattern then I need to be worried about this outcome it might be a 10 percent chance to see that outcome but if I miss it and don't intervene now it could be a mess later I might lose my license because that patient has a horrible outcome what have you right it's exactly the same uh, when we're monitoring the world is that there are certain indicators and certain patterns that when we see them if you don't start moving that information along then you are at risk of being accused of withholding information or ignoring critical indicators and the process is the same. So when we talk about anticipation, I actually do like that word better than prediction, better than forecast, and I've used all three words and and I've had people go various different levels of nonlinear on me for using these different terms. Really what I like is the notion of you preparing somebody to analyze something in a prioritized fashion, to look for certain indicators as the days go by, as the weeks go by, that, hey, we need, we're kind of worried about this, this outcome might happen, right? To me, that is prediction, that's a form of prediction, it's anticipation. When we detect an unusual pocket or an unusual signal in some part of the world, that actually is anticipation of, of an impact potentially affecting the United States from the United States point of view because we're, we could be connected to that side by the air traffic grid. So as we're tracking these events, many of these events that you've read about in the media, Nipah virus, MERS, SARS, uh, 2009 H1N1 pandemic, a lot of these events were on the ground in a foreign country, you know, incubating and, and actively transmitting on the ground for weeks to months before it ever contacted U.S. interests. Okay? And so from that standpoint, you can say that that is anticipatory warning right there, right? It hasn't quite affected us yet. Now it might be affecting our, our partners and our allies in the, in the international community, um, and certainly the country that's directly involved, right? But we need to kind of we kind of need to bound what we mean by that term anticipatory, because we do have anticipation of these events a lot of times.
0: This concludes the first part of our discussion with Dr. James Wilson. But our conversation isn't over. In the next installment of our biosurveillance podcast, I speak with Dr. Wilson about his experiences in Haiti and his new book to be published soon. I hope you join us.